beginning from John chapter 3, uh, and I'm going to begin reading from verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anan near Salam, because there was plenty of water, and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but instead of sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. So this is the end of our series on encounters. And this morning we're going to look at John the Baptist and the effect that Jesus had on his life. So a word or two about the background of this particular story. John's disciples are very concerned about John's ratings, which are going down. For some time, he had been the hottest guy on the circuit, but the latest Nielsen survey confirmed that he is in danger of losing his status as a prime-time teacher. And you probably all know, we live in a trendy world where we always focus on who is up and who's down, who's in, who's out. They're having the same discussion. People are preoccupied with that kind of thing. And John the baptizer... His disciples' joy is completely dependent on his status. So they need him to be the big dog. Because when you're the big dog or associated with the big dog, you have status. You are important. And everybody else's position is determined by how they stack up next to the big dog. So in contrast, though, John the baptizer's whole ministry was about letting go from the very beginning. Now, up to this point in the gospel story, for over 400 years, God has been silent. Israel, the nation of God's people, had been waiting to hear God's word. And it had been over 400 years since the last prophet spoke God's word to them. And the people had tried hard to hold on to their faith. But the echo of God's promise of a Messiah, beginning from the very book of Genesis, was growing faint. And hard for people to hear. Remember, these were a people under Roman rule in despair of God's silence for 400 years. But now, God was about to flood back into the dark world with his light. And so the story begins with a priest named Zechariah and his wife named Elizabeth. About all we know from Scripture is that they were well advanced in years and that they were barren. And the priest Zechariah found himself in the temple one day offering incense, and an angel appeared to him and said, 
The prayer that you have prayed from your heart for so many years is about to be answered. You and Elizabeth are going to have a child, and this child for whom you have prayed for years and years and years, but I need you to know from the outset that when you have him, you will need to start letting him go. This child for whom you have prayed and believed and hoped would come, you will have to let him go on his own. You will not follow uh, in his footsteps like you were hoping and dreaming of. This child for whom you have prayed will never give you grandchildren. He will not support you in your old age. All of the normal dreams that parents have for their children, when you have this child, you will have to let go of him. Later in the story, when Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the baptizer, meets Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is also with child, the Bible says that John leaps with joy in his mother's womb. Luke wants us to understand that from the very beginning, John's joy was all about Jesus. John grew up and began his ministry, and in a sense, his ministry was all about letting go. John took a vow to let go of a normal life. John took a vow that he would not cut his hair, that he would not taste wine, that he would have to wear only certain clothes. The Bible tells us that he wore clothes made of camel hair that plays really well in northern Wisconsin in January. But in Israel, in the heat of the desert, it's just cray-cray. He could only eat certain foods. He would eat locusts and honey. He would live in isolation by himself, not in community. He had to let go of ever wanting to get married. He had to let go of having a family and all the dreams that any normal man would have. He had to let go of his life, and he did. And in the midst of all of that letting go, God asked him to do one more thing. You see, day after day, John the baptizer did what he was called to do. He would go down by the banks of the Jordan River, and he would preach repentance. And then walking down to the warm waters, he would baptize those who responded to his message, those who were ready to listen to God break his silence. And one day, as he finished lifting out of the water a man or woman that he'd been baptizing, his eyes look up and he sees Jesus. And again, just yet as he'd done in his mother's womb, his heart leaped for joy, the text tells us. And he knew in that instant that all of the letting go that he had been asked to do was now worth it. And this was his big moment in life. This was his joy. This was the one whom his ministry was all about. And all those dusty days and months and years he had spent wandering in the wilderness and rendering the people who came to the waters of the Jordan. And now Jesus was here, most likely with John's crowd, all watching him. John the baptizer, the first voice of God to break the silence in 400 years, walked with Jesus into the Jordan River and dipped God's Son into its muddy waters. And John the baptizer heard the voice from heaven, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And for a brief time, 
the ministries of Jesus and John the Baptist continued side by side. But then a strange thing happened. Slowly at first, and then more obviously, people started coming to Jesus and not John. And they all started going to Jesus. And God said, you must give up one more thing, John. It's now to give up your ministry. And in response, his disciples watching did not like this at all. To his disciples, John the baptizer had always been the big dog. He was the first prophet in 400 years. His disciples remembered the day that that carpenter came to be baptized, and nobody knew about him. And that carpenter was getting bigger and bigger and bigger than John. And if John didn't do something about it, didn't hang on, he'd be a loser. He would have been a has-been. That's what they're worried about. You know, one of the hardest things in life that you have to learn to do is if you're going to receive joy from God, you have to learn to let go. When you're a parent, you think that the hardest part of being a parent is taking care of your kids, watching and protecting them. But that is not really the hardest part. The hardest part is that you have to let them go. Starts early. The first day of school is very traumatic for children. Anybody else know who it's very traumatic for? That's right. You all know. It's parents that bring their kids there to let them go. And you think you've got to let them go. They're going to get bullied, tempted. They're going to fail, be hurt some uh, time. They're going to be shanked in the lunch line or something. And they're, they're going to have some foolish teacher don't like them, don't see their, their brilliant potential. And you can't do anything about it. You just got to let them go. And then they get older. And they get to the point where they get into a car all by themselves with the keys. And they drive off. And you got to let them go. You have to do it. There's an old story. You may have heard about it where a guy falls off the side of a cliff and he's on his way down this sheer cliff and he's going to die and he throws his hands out and by some miracle his hand grasps onto a branch that's protruding from the side of the cliff and he just grabs onto it and he's suspended there. And he begins to yell, is anybody up there? And this voice comes and says, yes. And he says, well, who is it? And the voice says, it's God. And he says, oh, it's wonderful. Save me. And then the voice says, okay. The guy says, well, what should I do? And the voice says, let go of the branch. There's a brief pause. And the guy says, is there anybody else up there? (laughs) This is what's happening for John and his disciples. For one whole phase of John's life, The question has always been, does he have enough faith to hang on? Does he have enough faith to persevere? And now an even harder question comes, does he have enough faith to let go? You see, we all clutch desperately to our little attempts to make our lives important and to have value. And so we clutch onto our money, our possessions, our position, our power, our children. Jesus comes along with the good news of the kingdom that you can be saved. And we say, what should we do? And he says, repent. And a good deal of repenting has to do with just letting go. So what are the questions I have for you this morning? 
What is it that you need to just let go of? It may be that you're in a relationship with a friend or a child or a spouse, and you've been trying to make sure that relationship works with all your heart, but the truth is, is you're just trying to control it. You're trying to manipulate that relationship. Maybe out of good intentions, maybe not, but you've just been trying to manipulate it in a way that does not respect the freedom of the other person. So this morning, you need to give up trying to control it, as scary as that can be. It scares people to let go of the branch, but you've got to let go. It may be that there is a habit that has been part of your life for a long time, and you need to just let go of it, and that frightens you. It may be that you've been holding on to money to give you security, a sense of importance, or just the thrill of getting new stuff, but today, Jesus is speaking to you about the fact that we live in a world of need, and he's calling you to let go and to serve. You know, this theme of letting go is so deeply embedded into the very character of God himself. Uh, If you take a look, if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 4, verse 34. If you remember, there is uh, one passage, uh, passage in Philippians 2 about Jesus. Just a glorious passage about Jesus who speaks as the one who lets go of power glory in heaven in order to come to earth and become human. He has to let go of everything, including his very own life. Jesus lets go of power. He doesn't consider equality with God something to be grounds for grasping. And he empties himself out and he lets go. And then John, verse 34, says, My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, what delights Jesus is not doing his own will. It is to do the will of the Father. If you remember Jesus' great prayer at the end of his life, not my will, but your will be done. And again, if you look over now, chapter 3, verse 35, says the Father loves the Son. And how does he show this love? By placing everything into his Jesus' hands. You see, God the Father himself does not clutch onto power and authority, but gives all power and authority to his Son. Look at verse 34. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. In other words, Jesus speaks the word of the Father, The Father gives the Spirit without measure. The Spirit's response is to not seek glory for himself, but to glorify the Son and draw everyone to the Father through the Son. Within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, within the very Trinity of God, letting go power, status, out of love for each other is embedded in who God is. And it's his great joy to let go. And this crisis comes for John and to John's disciples. He must let go. Look at verse 27 and 28. John's disciples kind of whispering in his ear, how come they're all going to Jesus? You need to do something. This is what John says. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. 
John the Baptist has a long history of learning how to let go. And when that moment comes, he is able to do it again. With the disciples whispering in his ear to do something, John the Baptist refused to get caught up in the deadly game of comparison that so many of his disciples were playing. John knew who he was and who he wasn't, what his gifts were and what they weren't. And folks, comparison is a deadly game. It's a deadly game for each and every one of us. It is a deadly game for our church. And if you're like me, you played that game. The danger of comparison is that no matter who you do it with, eventually somebody's going to be prettier, smarter, faster, more popular, higher up the ladder than you are. There's always someone who's better. The danger of comparison is we find ourselves looking to other people for our value and determining our value by how we compare with other people. The danger of comparison is that it robs you of what John was in danger of losing. And that was the joy that God had placed before him and created especially for him. You and I are in danger of giving up the joy that God has for us when we're busy chasing somebody else's joy. Then the joy that God has for us is never allowed and it never comes. But perhaps the most deadly part of comparison is the hierarchy that it sets up. The hierarchy of comparison is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to convert the triangle of power in this world, to turn it upside down so where those who are thought to be at the bottom are really are the ones we should be serving. And when you compare yourself, you always end up devaluing somebody else in order to look like you're on top of the pyramid. You know, for 400 years, Israel had waited and waited and waited, and Jesus came as a servant They didn't expect that. Many of them missed it. And they missed the joy of Jesus. When you compare yourself to somebody else, somebody always loses. Somebody always ends up at the top of the triangle. Somebody always ends up at the bottom of the triangle. One of you is not going to measure up. One of you is going to measure up. One will be greater. One will be lesser. And if you're not going to measure yourself by comparing you are with other people, then you've got to get two things straight, and that is who God is and who God has made you to be. You've got to get real clear on who God is and who God made you to be. And you see this in John the Baptist. Look at verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but in in sent ahead of him. In other words, I know who the Messiah is. I know who God is, and it ain't me. John says, I told you from the very beginning, I'm not the Messiah. 
And those are tremendously liberating words. In fact, let's just go ahead and say them to each other. Just turn to the person next to you right now and just say, I am not the Messiah. Just go ahead and say that. All right. You don't have to convince them of it. All right. So just take those words with you this morning. Tomorrow, when your boss asks you to do something really difficult, you say, I'm not the Messiah. It's just real helpful. Remember, I am not the Messiah. And then this beautiful picture, picture John paints, verse 29. John says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine. And it is now complete. You know, at a wedding in John the Baptizer's day, there was a special person who was known as the friend of the groom. They had a technical term for it called a shafin, and that was a friend of the groom. And he oversaw all the arrangements, including sending out the invitations and accompanying the groom. And they had a last task to do. As many of you know, weddings back then took a long period of time. They would celebrate for days And on the final night of the wedding, after the ceremony was over, the friend of the groom would stand guard over the tent where the bride waited for the groom. He would stand by the flap of the tent, make sure no one else came to get the bride. And it would be dark. Couldn't see other people's faces. And when the groom came, the friend of the groom would hear his voice. And he knew the voice of his friend, of the groom. And the friend would stand aside, get out of the way. And the groom would enter into the tent in the joy of claiming his bride. And the friend of the groom had the joy of serving his friends. This is a beautiful picture that John paints. John the baptizer says, that's my joy. I have spent my life sending out the invitations. You know, Revelation 19, 7 says, Let us rejoice, let us have joy, and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. John says to his disciples, I serve the groom. He's my friend. And now he's come. And I hear his voice. And he says to his disciples, here's what's going on. Jesus is now claiming his bride. The church, the people are all his bride. They're not mine. The joy of the groom belongs to him. And he says to his disciples, don't think this is painful for me. Don't be under that illusion. I too have great joy. Because my joy is the joy of the friend of the groom. My joy is complete. Every time another person goes to Jesus, it is the bride with the groom, and that completes my joy. And if I were trying to seize his joy, I'd end up with no joy at all. So John says, now my joy is complete, and I will not lose that, so don't mess with my joy. Don't mess with my joy. 
And he says in verse 30, He must become greater. I must become less. If there is one verse that you can take away from this whole series on encountering, it is this. This is the statement that we've been kind of working towards the last few weeks. And got to understand John's meaning here. This is not a, state of a, a statement of a martyr. He is not saying, you know, I'll just go and eat worms now and I don't count. This is not an unhealthy devaluing of who God made him to be. This is a statement of John of just sheer joy. This is the joy of the friend who realizes the bride has now received her groom and he has had a part to play in it. This is John's life mission in the kingdom of God. And it's an interesting thing about this statement. We, we are coming quickly to Christmas where we celebrate on December the 25th. Anybody know why December the 25th was chosen as the date for Christmas? It's not because they thought that was the day Jesus was historically born on that day. There was never a time in the history of the church when they thought that they had the date pegged. Uh, it was not chosen at random. It was chosen because on December the 25th, that's about the time of the year when the day begins to get longer. And the light begins to increase a little bit more every day. And they chose that day as a reminder that this was the time when the light of the world arrived. And if you think about it, in the first century when there were no electrical lights and not much of a way of sources of light other than the sun itself, then the increase in the light was a terribly significant thing for them to celebrate and remember. Does anybody here know in the traditional church calendar when John the Baptist's birthday is celebrated? It's June the 24th. You want to know why? It's because that's when the days start to get shorter. That's when the light begins to lessen. You see, every year when you follow the calendar, whether you realize it or not, it's a permanent reminder of this verse. He must become greater. I must become less. So for each of us, as a result of the encounters that we have with Jesus, we are left with this decision. Will we allow Jesus to become greater in our lives and ourselves to become less? We are faced with the same choice that the leper faced, the blind man faced, that Zacchaeus faced, that John the baptizer faced himself. There is great joy in encountering Jesus and the magnificence of Christ in my life as he grows, and I become less and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for the example of the men and women's lives that we have looked at, how they have been faithful to the very end, faithful to persevere, but also persevere and knowing when to let go. God, help us to not hold too quickly onto the things that are around us to the point where they become an idol to us. They become more important to us than you and your son. God, help us to become less and to make Jesus more. 
God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who is, who is just holding on to their own treasures, to their own desires, to their own plans for life, that this be the morning where they just let go and give it all to you. To take the hand of Jesus and to follow him. And it all begins with simply just repenting, just saying, God, uh, there is this way of my life that's just not leading to joy. It's not leading to life. So today I, I choose to follow you, to receive your salvation, to follow your way of life. God, I pray if there's anybody here this morning, they would do that. Would this be the moment where they let go and follow God? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.